If you're enjoying Bradbury 100, please check out my other podcast, Science Fiction 101, in which we explore the past, present and future of science fiction. Find it at 101sf.blogspot.com and head over to YouTube to find my Bradbury 101 series, in which I look at Ray's books and movies. This is Bradbury 100, celebrating the life and work of American writer Ray Bradbury. I'm Phil Nichols of bradburymedia.co.uk. Hello, and welcome once again to Bradbury 100. It's a shorter episode this time, and we're going to be doing something a bit more uplifting. If you remember last time, we looked at the death of Uncle Lester, and I said we needed to do something a bit lighter. So here we are. This time we're going to be looking at dinosaurs. Ray Bradbury wrote quite a few stories about dinosaurs, and he collected them together into a book called Dinosaur Tales, which came out in 1983. Now, the stories in that book were written over a number of decades, or at least published over a number of decades, ranging from the 1950s through to the 1980s. And Dinosaur Tales is an illustrated book. It has very nice artwork from very well-known fantasy artists, such as William Stout, Jim Steranko, Gay and Wilson, and several others. So let's take a look at Dinosaur Tales. The book begins with a foreword not by Ray Bradbury, but Ray Harryhausen. Harryhausen was a lifelong friend of Ray's, well they knew each other from about the age of 18. Harryhausen was the famous animator who developed his technique working with Willis O'Brien on Mighty Joe Young, which was the kind of, I suppose, poor man's sequel to King Kong. Harryhausen grew to fame with his own films, such as Jason and the Argonauts, uh, The Seventh Voyage of Sinbad, Clash of the Titans, to name just a few. And in his foreword, Harryhausen talks of falling in love with dinosaurs in his childhood, and being completely blown away by the 1925 film The Lost World, which, prior to King Kong, was probably Willis O'Brien's masterpiece. The dinosaurs you see in The Lost World were very much inspired by the artwork of Charles R. Knight, an artist whose magnificent dinosaur murals graced museums all over the United States, in particular the Chicago Field Museum. Hold that thought, we'll come back to that in a short while. Bradbury had a similar childhood experience to Harryhausen, he too saw The Lost World on first release in 1925. Both of these kids would have been five years old that year, by the way. And both Harryhausen and Bradbury saw King Kong when it was released in 1933. And they both became 13 in that year. So you can see these films came along at the time of life when kids are really open to influence. 
Whereas Harryhausen was driven to build his own dinosaurs and make his own dinosaur films, Bradbury was driven, well, to fantasise about dinosaurs and later to write about them. And Bradbury's own introduction to Dinosaur Tales lays this out. He sets the scene for the stories that then follow. The first story in Dinosaur Tales is not one of Ray's classics. It's actually a new story, first published in this book, never published before. And it's called... Besides a dinosaur, what do you want to be when you grow up? And it begins with a Spalding, Benjamin Spalding. Now, if you've read a lot of Bradbury, you'll be very familiar with the name Spalding. The Spalding family are the basis of dandelion wine. And there are Spaldings that pop up in various Bradbury short stories. And Ray even used the name Douglas Spalding as his official pseudonym with the Writers Guild of America. So if he was working on a film project and needed to withdraw his name, he could substitute Douglas Spalding as his pseudonym. As far as I can recall, he only did this the once, and that was on the film Picasso Summer. So if you watch that film, you'll see that it's written not by Ray Bradbury, but by Douglas Spalding. Anyway, besides a dinosaur, what do you want to be when you grow up? Focuses on Benjamin Spalding, a 12-year-old boy. Of course, this is Bradbury, after all. And he says that he wants to be a dinosaur when he grows up. He goes off to the Field Museum with his grandfather. See, I said that would come back. And he's overwhelmed by what he sees in the dinosaur exhibit there. And he makes it clear to his grandfather that he has a hierarchy of preferred dinosaurs, that uh, if he is going to be a dinosaur, it's got to be a T-Rex, not a Brontosaur, not an Allosaurus, not a Pterodactyl. Oh no, it's got to be a T-Rex. When he gets home, Benjamin has these ongoing dinosaur fantasies, and he actually becomes quite ill, gets into a kind of distressing fever dream. And that, again, is something we've seen before. There's fever dreams in dandelion wine there's a bradbury short story called fever dream obviously something that resonated very much with ray oh and by the way a minor character in besides a dinosaur what do you want to be when you grow up is mr wineski he's the town barber he's also a boarder at the grandparents lodging house and again there's an echo of dandelion wine where Douglas Spaulding's grandparents own a boarding house, where Douglas Spaulding's parents take in lodgers. And I believe that is based on Ray's real grandparents who did that exact thing. And there's another short story with Mr Wineski in it, and that's the one called Any Friend of Nicholas Nickleby's is a Friend of Mine. Now I'll leave you to read the story yourself. No spoilers here, but suffice it to say that Besides a dinosaur, what do you want to be when you grow up? Ends reasonably happily. The second story in Dinosaur Tales is A Sound of Thunder, and this one is an absolute classic. This is the time travel story where we go back in time to hunt dinosaurs. 
the classic science fiction time travel paradox story. We start in something which is similar to our world, but with extrapolations into the future, and we're on the eve of an election. Our heroes go back in time, they hunt dinosaurs, knowing that the very dinosaur they're going to kill was going to die anyway, and therefore they're not going to interfere with the timeline. And they should arrive back where they started from, or when they started from, with no ill effects. But of course, it's a story, something goes wrong. The central character, Eccles, steps off the path. He disobeys the rules, and in so doing, he steps on a butterfly. This is 60 million years in the past, don't forget. That means that the offspring of that one butterfly, all the way down the generations, will no longer exist. By killing the one butterfly 60 million years ago, Eccles has changed our world. When the time travellers arrive back in the present, they find the world is slightly askew, and that the election candidate, the fascist, the Nazi candidate, turns out to have won the election. Of course, Eccles has to pay the price for his misdeed, but I'll leave you to read the story to see what the price is that you pay for having destroyed the timeline. As I say, it's a classic science fiction story. It's been imitated. It's been parodied. It's not the only story to have time travel where people go and hunt dinosaurs. There's another one from the very same era by Al Sprague de Camp. It's a story called A Gun for Dinosaur. And there's one by Brian Aldiss called Poor Little Warrior. So I think there was something in the air in the 1950s about doing this, about going back and hunting dinosaurs. Although A Sound of Thunder is seen as a classic today, probably one of the most famous science fiction short stories in history, it had a bit of a mixed reception at the time. In 1952, Ray submitted the story to one of the leading science fiction magazines, Fantasy and Science Fiction. It's still going today. In those days, it was edited by Anthony Boucher and J. Francis McComas. They had a very good reputation as editors. So what did they make of the story? Well, in a letter to Ray, they said, and I quote, Ha! We don't believe a word of it. A minute change in time would have infinitely wide ramifications, but not such minor changes. A world apparently just the same, save for spelling and who won the election. Unless you can build up a convincing end and also give us a hint at the logic of altered events, this ain't no good for us and our rates. So they passed on the story. So what did Ray do? Did he just throw the story away? Oh no, he submitted it to Collier's, which was one of those general sort of family magazines of the time, a bit like the Saturday Evening Post. And their rates were rather higher than fantasy and science fiction. So Collier's snapped it up and they gave it a lavish double-page colour spread. Shortly afterwards, the story was collected in Ray's book Golden Apples of the Sun and the rest is history. It became a classic. Oh, the dinosaur in that story... I almost forgot to mention, is a Tyrannosaurus rex, and Ray's description of it is one of his finest pieces of writing. 
It begins, it came on great, oiled, resilient, striding legs. It towered thirty feet above half of the trees. A great evil god, folding its delicate watchmaker's claws close to its oily reptilian chest. If you've never read A Sound of Thunder, you really must. It's an absolutely essential piece of Bradbury. With A Sound of Thunder, we're over halfway through Dinosaur Tales. It's not a very long book, this one. What comes next is a poem. Now, Ray wrote a lot of poetry in his life, and a fair bit of it was published by mainstream publishers. But to be honest, I'm not a great fan of his poetry. I've always said that there are maybe two or three pieces that work for me, and the rest, well, I can just take it or leave it. But then again, I'm not a fan of poetry generally. Anyway, this poem is called Lo, the Dear Daft Dinosaurs, and it's a brand new piece for Dinosaur Tales, never before published. And it begins, Holy smoke, can I be dreaming? What's that waltzing up the strand? Dinosaurs from deeps are streaming, come to jumble jog the land. And it goes on. Probably the best part of this piece is the illustration, which is by Overton Lloyd, who's probably best known for his album art for George Clinton and others. I don't know if you can spoil a poem by giving away the ending. In this case, I don't think it would harm it. The final line, Praise the beasts, but damn the tar. Ray, I'm sure, influenced there by the La Brea tar pits, which were not far from his Los Angeles home. Next in Dinosaur Tales is The Foghorn, again an absolute Bradbury classic, originally published under the title The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms, and of course that was the name of the film, very loosely based upon the story, and the film which gave Harryhausen and Bradbury their only opportunity to have their names on the credits of the same film. Story by Ray Bradbury, animation by Ray Harryhausen. This is the story of the creature that rises up from the deeps when it hears the plaintive wail of a foghorn. But it thinks it's another one of its kind. So it investigates, and it's so sad to discover that it's not another dinosaur, it's just a foghorn. So it destroys the lighthouse. In the way the story is told, I don't think it's that typical of Bradbury, although the descriptions of the creature are very much in Bradbury's style. But there's something of the Edgar Allan Poe about it, something of the Gothic, I think, in the way that it's set out, talking about the lonely life of the lighthouse keeper. Probably the best section of the story is when the monster replies to the foghorn. It goes, The foghorn blew, and the monster answered. A cry came across a million years of water and mist, a cry so anguished and alone that it shuddered in my head and my body. The monster cried out at the tower. The foghorn blew. The monster roared again. 
the foghorn blew. The monster opened its great toothed mouth, and the sound that came from it was the sound of the foghorn itself, lonely and vast and far away. The sound of isolation, a viewless sea, a cold night, a partness. That was the sound. It's a very moving piece. And typically of Bradbury, he's able to make you feel sorry for something that is not human. We often judge writers by their ability to generate sympathy or empathy for a character. Bradbury has a unique ability of being able to do this for non-human characters, and in this case, the dinosaur. Now, according to Hollywood legend, it was this story that led John Huston to ask Ray Bradbury to work on the film of Moby Dick. There was something about Bradbury's description of the creature that reminded Houston of Melville. Next comes another poem, What If I Said the Dinosaur Is Not Dead? which begins with the line, What If I Said the Dinosaur's Not Dead? And this is based on a real-life experience of Ray's. He says he was at dinner with friends, and somebody asked everyone around the table to name their favourite subjects in all the world. And Ray immediately cried out, Dinosaurs! Followed by Egypt, Tutankhamun, and mummies. And supposedly everyone around the table agreed with Ray that dinosaurs were the best thing ever. And he said to them, if at this very instant a total stranger rushed into the room crying, my God, there's a dinosaur outside, everyone would rush out and have a look, even though they would know that it couldn't possibly be true. But you would, you would leap up and rush outside because, according to Ray, you'd be hoping for a miracle in your heart of hearts. You want a tame brontosaurus to come back into the world. So this very slight poem simply brings that anecdote to life with a really nice cartoon by Gay and Wilson. Uh, it shows a, a traffic cop writing a ticket for a dinosaur, which is, I suppose, occupying multiple parking bays. Finally, in Dinosaur Tales, we come to Tyrannosaurus Rex, the short story. And this one dates from the 1960s, when it first appeared in the Saturday Evening Post, under the title The Prehistoric Producer. And this one is inspired by Ray Harryhausen, and it's about an animator. He has the unlikely name of John Terwilliger, and he makes this little animated film called Tyrannosaurus the Thunder Lizard, and he shows the footage to to a producer. And this producer is very dismissive. He says, nah, I've seen better. Other people in the room think the footage is beautiful, but the producer says, well, it's jerky. And at the end of the screening, the producer says, well, I'm glad that's over. Now, although the producer is critical, he does actually give Terwilliger the job, but he's not very happy with the pace of Terwilliger's work. And Terwilliger basically says, well doesn't matter how much time I take, you're going to pay me the same. And there's a nice little description of how Harryhausen, or Terwilliger, builds a dinosaur. 
fuse flexible spine to sinuous neck, pivot neck to death's head skull, hinge jaw from hollow cheek, glue plastic sponge over lubricated skeleton, slip snake-pebbled skin over sponge, meld seams with fire, then rear upright triumphant in a world where insanity wakes but to look on madness, Tyrannosaurus Rex. After further monstrous abuse from the producer, Terwilliger's masterpiece is viewed, and surprisingly the producer finds this footage better. He says it's horrific and blood-curdling. But soon the penny drops. He realises that the animated creature looks like him, the producer. And Terwilliger is a bit shocked by this. He says, I didn't know I was doing it. I swear it came out in my fingers. It was all subconscious. My fingers do everything for me. They did this. So it doesn't look good for Terwilliger. He's going to get the sack for making fun of the producer until a lawyer points something out to the producer. He says the dinosaurs in the film are like statues, only moving. And he goes on to say, years from now, people will say, remember that film, The Monster from the Pleistocene? And people will say, sure, why? Because, the others say, it was the one monster, the one brute in all Hollywood history had real guts, real personality. And why is this? Because one genius had enough imagination to base the creature on a real-life, hard-hitting, fast-thinking businessman of A1 calibre. You're one with history, Mr Clarence. Film libraries will carry you in good supply. Cinema societies will ask for you. How lucky can you get? Nothing like this will ever happen to Emmanuel Glass, that's the lawyer. Every day for the next 200, 500 years, you'll be starring somewhere in the world. So the producer is hugely flattered now and his view of Terwilliger's work changes. I don't know whether the producer in question is based on a real producer. I suspect he is, but I don't know who it was, I'm afraid. Well, Tyrannosaurus Rex is a fitting end for the book Dinosaur Tales. It's one of Ray's dinosaur stories that pre-existed the book, but it's a light tale. It fits in perfectly with the lighter tone of the poems in the book. And in a way, it turns out to be a story about someone who quite likes being represented as a dinosaur, which ties back to Benjamin Spalding and his fever dream and wanting to become a dinosaur. Dinosaur Tales is quite a short book. It wouldn't take you that long to read. If you've already read the famous stories, uh, The Foghorn, Sound of Thunder and Tyrannosaurus Rex, you perhaps don't need dinosaur tales. But if you like the idea of gathering things together, you know, gathering all the stories with a common thread, and to boot throwing in Ray's dinosaur anecdote and Ray Harryhausen's foreword, plus some wonderful illustrations from some of the finest artists, Dinosaur Tales is worth checking out. That's it for now. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time. If you've been enjoying the podcast, I'd appreciate it if you could give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts.
Bradbury 100 is presented and produced by Phil Nichols. Music is provided by Purple Planet at purpleplanet.com. Please subscribe using your podcast app. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, SoundCloud, and all good podcast places. And please also check out my YouTube series, Bradbury 101, and my other audio podcast, Science Fiction 101. For information on all of these, head to bradburymedia.co.uk. 